The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. We are in 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 14. Well, good morning again. Uh, I do want to take just a second to thank someone, Erin um, McCabe, wherever she is. She is our ministry director. She um, did all of this and um, with her team and um, help. She's, there she is over there. So, um, she does this. She sets it up to make it look like the ascent nearly every week. And today was even, even more than that. And so thank you for making us not only uh, feel comfortable uh, in this odd time of pandemic, but also fun and sweet and uh, so glad to be together. Um, well, I, uh, I was thinking just this back past week about when I uh, proposed to my wife. And um, many moons ago, 20 some odd years ago, and um, it was a fun moment. I had have everything planned. Uh, she, I was going to surprise her at the beaches of Hilton Head in South Carolina, where she and her family had uh, grown up going and, uh, and all that. So we drove all the way out there and and I had this amazing plan, and thankfully it worked out, um, and even had some help from, um, obviously, her family, and, and they kept the secret for months. But the thing I didn't plan for was uh, what the ring would be like. Uh, when I purchased this ring, I remember getting it and thinking, oh, wow, this box, this little blue box with a little, like, golden thing around it, and opening it up and seeing what just captivated me over and over. Uh, this golden band with this diamond there that I just couldn't stop looking at. And it was so goofy because I would, <laughs> I would literally um, open it up every now and then. Like I would, I would find it and just look at it, make sure it not only was there, but would just kind of look at it like this. I'd hold it up in different lights. Like I found myself waking up in the middle of the night, turning on the lamp on my, you know, night table, and then seeing the box just across the room, not even getting up to open it, just looking, just staring at it, just kind of, there's the box. And what was incredible about it, it's just that, that little thing made what I was going to do so real. It, it wasn't the ring that made my relationship, but the, the ring that that little thing made the whole story of my relationship to Megan so real and precious. And I couldn't stop looking at it in a million different ways. And, and there's this word in Christianity that you may hear uh, in the Bible, outside the Bible. You heard it in this passage. It's, it's called the gospel. And gospel just means good news. We're gonna unpack that more. But, but it basically, when you read that here, it's kind of an interesting thing because Paul and anybody who uses this word are constantly saying it in ways to where they hold it up and they examine it and they talk about the preciousness of it and they look at it from afar and they look at it up close and they look at all their relationships through it because it's not just some like religious term because I think in our context, a lot of times we can talk about, oh, the gospel and we can just throw that out. But for them, it was something they made sense of everything through it. 
And it wasn't, it wasn't just something, it pointed to the real relationship they had with someone else. And so anytime they talked about it, anytime they had it, anytime they like had a conversation with somebody, it was heralded as incredibly precious, incredibly valuable, and they took great caution in who they gave it to and who they talked to and how they talked about it. Because it wasn't just a thing, it was a person. It related to the Lord Jesus. This good news event that swept their story up so much so into his story. And that's what it means. Uh, you know, we're looking at this letter, we're looking at a, a letter called Second Timothy, that, this guy named Paul in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows what Timothy is or who Paul is. Paul was a, a major writer in the New Testament. Majority, a third of the New Testament was written by this guy. Uh, letters to churches and even now here individuals. And he was writing to a man named Timothy, a young pastor who was going to be a preacher and pastor of one of the major cities, Ephesus, in that time. But Timothy was super timid. He struggled. And the question was always, okay, how's the, local, how's the church going to really fare with this? I mean, it's a good question for us. This is why we're looking at it. Because we want to ask the question, why is the local church important? Why is this valuable? I mean, with beautiful tears and reality, Wayne explained to you, it isn't just about some guy like me standing up and speaking. It's not just about this. It's about us together. What is so valuable about us doing this? Whether you're sitting on the lawn or at home, what makes the gospel valuable? It's that our story is swept up into another. And, and that's why we're going to look at this, even his elaborate letter, and it's so personal and deep. You can even see the names mentioned of his, uh, his grandmother and mother, Timothy. But this isn't just some letter that, you know, maybe you have struggles with the Bible. Is it, is it reliable? Hey, look, you don't just put someone's grandmother and mother written down in a letter if there's not a reality to the connection of this story of the gospel goes way beyond you and me. And that's what brings us together. So we're going to look at this in two ways, this passage. Uh, we're going to look at, just to ask the question, what is the gospel? Uh, even if we know it means good news, like let's kind of examine it again. Let's take it out of the box. Let's hold it up and look at the preciousness of it for a second. What is it? And then actually ask, how do we guard it? What does it look like for us? If we say we are Christians, that means a follower of Christ. What does it mean for us to actually guard the good news? So, so what is it? The word um, gospel is used here a number of times. And again, maybe you've heard it before. It means, um, it means good news. And, and the word comes out of evangelion. And maybe you've heard me mention this or someone else. It actually didn't begin as a religious word. In fact, in this first century, it was used in a number of occasions. It was used of leaders, authority figures. And a lot of times you would read inscriptions like the gospel according to Emperor Trajan. Um, and if you look in Annals of History, it describes particularly moments where the gospel is a historical event. So this good news, it, it, usually connected to war or a victory of war or a king uh, ascending to a throne, that's where the gospel, the good news came in. Mark is actually, the, the gospel of Mark in, in the New Testament is probably one of the first places that that word gospel is actually used in a religious way to describe the events of Jesus Christ. 
So if you're looking historically, the word gospel taken out, what it means is there's an event. And it didn't mean an event that you had an opinion about. It was an event that you had, had a reaction to. Uh, think about this, it, you know, and, and gosh, I guess football season's back in some sense, uh, some odd sense, right? Uh, but I remember, you know, those moments, um, in the, at least last year, uh, when they would have uh, someone on the field who had a loved one who was overseas, possibly in the military, and they were doing a celebration for them, and all of a sudden they did this big reveal. And all their, their loved one walks out on to the field. It could be a brother, a sister, a spouse, whoever it was, a son, a, a daughter, walked out onto the field behind them. They turn around and there's just this, they're home, right? The good news of their, you know, loved one being there was, didn't warrant them. In a, they, didn't, they don't turn around and go, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. I don't know if this can happen right now. You know, there wasn't like an opinion toward it. It's a, it's a total reaction too. They either crumple to the ground or, or they, they embrace them. There's, there's this more thing. When good news is proclaimed, there's always a reaction to it. Uh, when you go to the doctor and the doctor's there with you and you go in and they say, good news. It's not what we think it is. It's not what you might've thought it was. How do you feel in that moment? It's good news that warrants your heart, your whole self to go. You don't have an opinion of it. You go, whew, you crumple in joy because the good news is historical. But the good news means there's an actual real problem, right? It means there's something historically that's a problem. And in this passage, it says this here, about the, the gospel. Verse nine, it says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now listen to what that's saying, before the ages began. There's actually something in Greek there that's hearkening back to Genesis chapter three, the very beginning of the Bible, the first book called Genesis, Beginnings. The third chapter talks all about when Adam and Eve were there and sin enters the garden. The serpent comes in and, and creates this lie in the heart of, of Eve and Adam. They take the fruit, they disobey God and sin enters. But right after that, there's a proclamation over the serpent and over the man and the woman and cursings. But there's something there that can easy, easily be missed. It's in Genesis 3, verse 15. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is considered by so many, and this is where this Greek language of Paul's coming from, as considered the proto-evangelion. It sounds like something from Star Trek, okay? Proto-evangelion. It means the first gospel. It means that what is being said in Genesis 3, right after sin comes into the picture, right after everything, all of the relationship, all talk about isolation, all of isolation's origins, all of anxiety's origins, all of our, all of our disparity, all the disgust, all the, the, all the tensions relationally come in. Right on the heels of that, God's plan is this. I will 
bruise his head and you shall crush his, he shall bruise your heel and he shall bite your heel and you crush his head. This is, a, this is the first news of a plural to a singular that there is a gospel, there's good news. There's going to be someone that's coming that's gonna reverse this whole curse. Right on the heels of that. That's the good news over us. See, see the problem is so long. It's long before we sat on this lawn it's long before 2020 that couldn't get any weirder. That was the strangest, most difficult time. That everything was perfect. Think about this. We had everything good before 2020. It's okay, maybe. And then everything flipped. And then, you know, we're always like, what's next? In Genesis, there was nothing wrong. And then everything falls apart. Every single thing at once. And then right on the heels of that, is news that there's going to be good news, that there's going to be someone coming to reverse all of this. It's the story that we all long for. It's the story that we all need. And, and I, don't, I don't know where some of you are with this story or how comfortable you feel. I, I've, I've looked at, um, it's interesting though, if you do research, uh, you do research on Netflix just alone. Why, why do we, if we didn't binge watch Netflix before now, <laughs> We were all, you definitely have kind of come into the fold. Welcome, right? Um, but I, I looked at some research that Netflix themselves did on binge watching. Listen to what they say. This is what they, they discovered. Viewers see binge watching as engaging and immersive. It's TV improving quality. 76% of streamers said they watched several episodes at a time as a welcome refuge from the busy world we live in. 79% say they binge watch because it makes actual shows better. Duh, right? That's why we watch 12 instead of three. In a highly, and this is the one that really caught me. In a highly fragmented, 140 character, 24-7 world, viewers are seeking out longer forms of complex storytelling. You see, embedded in us is this longing. Why do we binge watch? Why do we long to immerse ourselves? It's because we already have. This isn't a new thing. Netflix is, is minded out of us, but we long for a story to be immersed in. Netflix has just figured it out. See, the Bible, long before Netflix, was trying to tell you and I that there's a story that's long, it's a long, complex story that has been written out for ages and that your story connects to it in ways that maybe only one, and when you read the Bible and you read, sometimes you draw out like this letter, this thing. Why is the Bible written in so many genres over so many periods of time with so many authors because we're just like Sesame Street. <laughs> if you watch Sesame Street, what do they do? It's genius every time. They take a letter and a number and they just beat it to death. They say, Here, this, this episode is brought to you by the letter R and the number nine. And then they do it like R, run, you know, R, you know, whatever. I mean, I can't even think of it. They, they just think of a million different things and then number nine. And they, by the end of it, you're like, yes, R and nine, I get it. Isn't that what the Bible's doing? Over and over layering your story within the ultimate complex story that has been told for ages. And that's what the Proto-Evangelion was. It was not God reacting to sin. It was, it's time. 
Let me tell you good news. Even before you leave the Garden of Eden because you have disobeyed me, I'm gonna speak good news over you. That's gonna come to fruition in the man of Jesus Christ. It's deeply embedded in the desire that we long for. So why do we guard it? Why, why is it important? Why should we take it and, and, and look at it and hold it as precious? Because for a lot of us, it's kind of not anymore. And we can talk about gospel and maybe for many of our hearts, we kind of grow numb to it. It's kind of rote. Maybe it's a, a sweet, sentimentalized thing. Maybe it's something that we're afraid to talk about. But here's the thing. We're all telling a story and this is what Paul is getting at here when he says, guard the good deposit, verse 14, that is entrusted to you, right? And he layers this to Timothy, someone who was so timid about it. Look, this is a preacher that this letter's to. This is very encouraging to me as your pastor because there are plenty of moments when I sit next to people or I sit on a plane and I've shared some of these with you as, as in jest. But I'm thinking in the back of my head, Okay, if I tell this person, A, I'm a Christian, and then B, I'm a pastor, what kind of reaction am I going to get? And I've gotten everything. The timidity that, that Timothy has, this is where he's trying to go. And, and, and this is the thing I want us to think about. We guard the narrative that we most love about ourselves. So every one of us here has a narrative. Every single one of us. Why is the gospel the most important one for us to cherish? Why is it the one that we should look at everything through? Is because this is the narrative that makes sense of you more than anything else. But what we need to remember is why we're, we're, we're all doing it. We may do it through our job. We may do it through a desire to, to have something, be it a, live in a certain place, have a certain relationship, have a certain family, think of ourselves in a certain way. We're all building a narrative. So much so, Ted, Ted Talks, I'm sure you've seen those. Ted.com did even a thing called the kinds of stories we tell about ourselves. And they even said, the kinds of stories we even build up are one of probably two things. One is a, uh, <clears throat> is a story that's called a contamination story and one is a redemptive story. And we're working on building those. Listen to this say. Northwestern University psychologist Dan McAdams is an expert on concept he calls narrative identity. McAdams describes narrative identity as an internalized story you create about yourself, your own personal myth. Like myths, our narrative identity contains heroes and villains that help us or hold us back, major events that determine the plot, challenges overcome, and sufferings we have endured. And when we want people to understand us, we share our story or parts of it with them. And we want to know who another person is, we ask them to share their story with ours. So here's the question. Is we all have, and I think they're onto something. We all have a narrative identity. The difference in what Christianity is saying and what, what Paul is trying to get at, and he's trying to encourage Timothy here, is that here's your narrative identity. Notice how he begins. I'm at verse four. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. First, he, he, he hinges on his relationship with Timothy. Second, he goes in verse five, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, which is in you that 
through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit of fear, not, and not a spirit of fear, but of power of love and self-control. That this is your narrative, Timothy. What is your narrative? What is the narrative over you? Because in some way, shape, or form, God has brought the good news to you and it couldn't be kept from you. It was something that was put in them. And what I love about this, it says, what can, what can attack us guarding this preciousness? And the number one thing he says twice, and Paul actually uses this word in a million different phrases throughout the Bible. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony. It's shame. Shame. And think about that. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And isn't it so easy to be ashamed of that? I mean, how in the world, and many of us might go, oh, what a, goodness, how could I be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus? But how many of those moments where you begin speaking about the story of the gospel and you go, this sounds crazy. Do you realize we're gathering on a lawn? Let's, let's just say the obvious. We're gathering on a lawn this morning to worship a first century Jew who claimed to be God. Can we just state the obvious? The moments I feel like when I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I have my, I'm studying over the passage that I may be preaching or something like that. And I have those moments where I'm thinking about the person right next to me and going, is it weird for me to be doing this right now? We all feel that. Is it weird that I don't want my boss or my, this is not me, I'm encouraging you these thoughts. Is it weird that I'm afraid that my boss or coworkers may know that I'm a Christian? Is it strange that I find myself in moments where when I speak of Christianity, it feels like it falls flat because it doesn't connect to my, my pain or my friend's pain? See, this is where Paul is going. You hear what he's saying? The testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Think about that, the association. How many times are we afraid to even talk about Christianity because we're afraid it's associated with whether it be a political thing, a social thing, something else like that? Why? Because we have shame. Because we have shame. Because we're afraid of this testimony. We're ashamed of what it does. That's why it's so funny when my, my son and his friend are sitting there talking about who's, who's the strongest Avenger and they're like, God, you know, like, do we have those conversations in, in real life? No. Do we believe he's really that strong? Are we ashamed to admit that maybe we don't know if he is because I'm still seeing the same struggles in my own heart, in my own world, and 2020 still looks like a mess? Is God really the author of this narrative? How do we know this? Because verse 9 and 10 come in, and this is how we know. What, what is the direct, what is the direct shot, the direct blow against shame in, in our life? It's being with. Here's what's amazing about God's narrative to us. Here's what's different about Christianity than anything else is that it doesn't just give us a bunch of teachings. It doesn't just give us a bunch of language. 
Verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What is that testimony? If you go even back up, what is the word that is used over and over in this passage? What are the prepositions? In, with, dwells. That same faith that dwells in you, the spirit that dwells in you. Share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who called us and calls us by a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know what this thing? It's a, it's a defined event. It's saying it's a defined event He says, fan the flame of that gift, fan the flame. And what he's saying is, it's not something you have to fan because many of us feel like fan the flame of that gift. It feels like, gosh, the embers are burning out. No, no, no. What he's saying to Timothy is, you're not fanning the flame of something that has died within you. You're actually fanning the flame of something that's already there, what you have. See, Christianity means that God didn't wait for us to come and grasp the teaching. I mentioned this last week in some respect, the difference between what's inherited faith and chosen faith. That oftentimes inherited faith can be, and we can read this here and go, well, isn't Timothy's inherited? Different. Inherited faith is oftentimes when we come to the gospel narrative and we say, that's the story that I just want to tell my kids because my parents told me it's a great thing. It works out and it fits well. Sometimes our shame in life is because everything was going well. Why does it have to be disruptive? My life is doing okay. Why do I need it? We don't even remember our need for the gospel. And what Paul is trying to get out here is fanning the flame of the gift that is yours that makes everything else precious because we're so used to looking at everything else trying to be precious that we miss the one who's with us because if anything that has shown us this narrative that we're trying to live right now changes every day. What stays the same? What stands the test of time is that with. What comes into the heart of darkness of shame is when God says, I am with you and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Even the age I began, I am with you in it. Fan the flame, that story that is yours in Christ. And that's what he says here. He says, therefore do not be ashamed. He says, I'm sorry, verse seven. For God gave us a spirit of fear, not of fear, but of power, love and self-control. I love not a spirit of fear. It's actually military language saying, don't retreat. Lately, my favorite movie has been on a lot, Braveheart. I don't know if you've seen this movie, old movie. Probably my top movie, all Scottish. Mel Gibson attacking the English as he always does. So good. There's a scene... Uh, this movie, by the way, holds a, it's, it's odd that um, I said this, holds a, a, a dear place in my heart as well as my first kiss with my wife during Braveheart. I know that sounds like during Braveheart. Very romantic. Uh, and it was between the uh, two tapes. We had VHS. I had it on VHS. It was two tapes. So it, I kissed her during the switching of the two tapes. Um, worked out really well. Uh, and here's what's amazing. There's a scene when, and I've even been to that battlefield at Stirling in Scotland, when there's this line of, of almost like farmers and peasant Scottish people, they're just like 
standing there and they're like, why should we fight? And here comes William Wallace on a horse. You know, he's riding face painted, looks amazing. And they said, run and we'll live. You know, if we run, we'll live. And he's like, yep, you run and you'll live. I won't do it in the Scottish. I could, but I love. He says, run and you'll live. And yet many years from now, lying in your beds, wouldn't you just give one chance, one chance to come back here and tell everyone that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, you know, and they all freak out and run charging. But that's, the, that's actually the picture of this Greek language. It is this building up. It's William Wallace saying, you want to know what your real story is? Yes, you'll live. You could die in your bed many years from now and be totally fine. But what the gospel is saying is it's not about us playing defense and, and hoping that we can have this good relationship with God. It's actually us being on the offense. It's actually saying we are called the charge life because our narrative, our story is wrapped up so much in his that that's where we find ourselves. See, the amazing thing about this gift that is given, this power of the gospel and how it drives into shame is that we have the ultimate illustration of it sitting right here at this table. This table every week that we get, get to come to and taste is the fact that this gift and this story has outlasted all of us. There's only been one person who's actually charged that hill. There's actually only been one who the good news has been carried out. And it's in his flesh and blood. It's that narrative. He's the, look, the number one thing for us, the question is right here when he says, Who's, what's the gospel about? The one who can destroy death and have immortality? Where does that come from? Those are things we talk about every day. And if we come to this table, we are actually drinking in the reality that someone is with us, that God himself took up flesh and blood that we exist in in order for us to know our narrative story is very real and very true. That's why I always say, feel the grass right now. I actually almost want you to put your hands down and feel the grass and know, feel that as real as this earth is, so real as God put himself in the position to feel it himself. So that when you taste this, you know that the gospel is presented. Come to it. If you've never come to Jesus before, if you've never entered into a relationship with him, know that this story is true, that this story is right and real. It connects to your heritage, to those long before you. It connects to your present realities, your timidity, your shame. It connects to all of those things. This gospel is even guarded for you by someone who gave their body and blood because you and I can't shed it, to hold it, to keep it. And it's also the gospel that you have to ingest, you take it in and you take it out. It's entrusted to you. It's not me, I'm not, just because I'm the one speaking, it's us. We're all taking this together so that when we leave our little squares and we go out in the week, the good news is entrusted to you to march out, not in timidity, but in, in reality. Because this Jesus is not ashamed of you. He loves you. He cares for you.